The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 40 through 45, which can be found on page 837 of your pew Bibles. Jesus cleanses a leper. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together as we look at God's word. Lord, thank you that you are a God who speaks. And as we pray each week, uh, when we open your word, we pray that we would be a people who hear, uh, that we would hear your voice, what you have to say to us this morning. And we need your spirit to do that. And so would your spirit, through Christ, to give us ears to hear and eyes to see you, Lord, and would you give us hearts that are ready to be changed by your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we begin a new series, See How He Loved Them, Meditations on the Heart of Jesus. And we're going to be spending our time this fall in the Gospels, in the first four books of the New Testament, which work together to tell a single story about Jesus Christ and about how God is establishing His kingdom through the life, death, and resurrection of his eternal son. And these gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell for us a true story. Uh, This is non-fiction. This happened in history. But the gospels are more than just historical biography. They're not just a record of what people once upon a time thought and said about Jesus The Gospels are better understood as a theological biography. They tell us what God thinks and says about his son, Jesus Christ, about his life and his work and and how he is dealing with sin and establishing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And more than any other portion of the scriptures, the Gospels reveal to us the person of of Jesus, the person of Jesus. And that's actually pretty easy to miss, even in reading through the Gospels. I mean, so often, our knowledge of Jesus gets stuck in the theoretical. We're really good at learning information about Jesus. We might understand the cross and all of the intricacies of the atonement. Uh, We might be able to recite the creeds, 
or spot heresy a mile away. And yet Jesus can still feel cold and distant, like a stained glass window picture or a character, a historical character in a, in a book. Now, right thinking, so right doctrine, sound doctrine matters. It is essential to a true knowledge of Jesus. That is a non-negotiable. But Jesus is more than a doctrine. He's a person. He's a person whose heart is filled with love for us. A person who wants us to know his love and rest in his love and emulate his love as we follow him daily. Knowing Jesus is not less than understanding the significance of his work or his nature, but it is more than that. It's beholding and enjoying his heart of love. And one of the best ways that we can see the heart of Jesus is by looking carefully at how he treated others, which we can see in the stories of the Gospels. When we read these stories of Jesus afresh with eyes toward his interaction to people, we behold his love. In John 11, uh, when Jesus arrived in Bethany, even though he knew that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he wept. He wept. And, and we remember that because it's the shortest verse in the New Testament, right? Jesus wept. But think about what's going on in that story. Jesus' heart broke for his friend. He grieved the evil of death and the sorrow of the bereaved, and he wept. He didn't just sniffle. He wept at that. And when the Jews who were, who were looking on saw this, many of whom were suspicious toward Jesus, they couldn't help but recognize in his weeping something very special. Seeing this, the Jews said, See how he loved him. See how he loved him. Jesus' heart was revealed in the way that he treated others. And that's what I want us to see this fall. To meditate on the heart of Jesus in his interaction with those around him and see how he loved them, how he loves us. And we'll start with a story from the Gospel of Mark. So if you're not still there, go ahead and make your way back to Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45. And Mark is the shortest gospel. It was probably the earliest one written. And it's known for its kind of fast-paced portrait of Jesus' ministry. It jumps quickly from scene to scene. And in our story, though we're still in chapter 1, Jesus has already begun his earthly ministry. Verse 39 summarizes, And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. 
And as he's traveling and preaching and healing, verse 40, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Now stop for a moment and think about this man. Look at how he's described here. What do you see? What do you see when you look at how he's described? Do you see desperation? He came to him imploring him, begging, pleading for help. Well, what's so desperate about a situation? What, what does it mean to be a leper? What, what kind of sickness are we talking about? Well, one author writes, like HIV AIDS in the 80s and 90s, leprosy in ancient Israel was the most dreaded disease. It is a contagious skin disease that not only affects one's skin, so the color and texture and odor, Uh, And throat, it creates a raspy voice, but it also slowly destroys nerves that sense pain in our bodies. So lepers often lost the, the tips of their fingers or toes and broke limbs because they couldn't feel the weight of something or the heat of the fire or the cut of a knife. So it's a dreadful disease. But the problem with leprosy in ancient Israel wasn't just the physical decay of the body. That's bad enough. But it's worse than that. Because it was extremely contagious and it made you ceremonially unclean. Which meant that you were not only uh, full of disease, it meant you were cut off from the community of faith and from worship in the temple. Leviticus 13 describes it like this. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So imagine being so contagious that you live your life in quarantine. One of our missionaries experienced that for several weeks. Uh, Dr. Rick Sacra, who contracted the Ebola virus disease when he was helping treat patients in Liberia in 2014, and he had to live for several weeks in quarantine, no human contact. So not only was his body shutting down, he was shut off from others. But even so today, we live in a day of specialized hospitals and hazmat suits and Skype. So so it's horrible, but but in the ancient world, it was a complete cutoff. There was none of that, no human interaction. And if anyone even got close, you were required to shout out, unclean, unclean. Stay away, it's not safe. That's desperation. That's desperation. He suffered not merely from physical disease, but social isolation. He was 
an outcast with a slow death sentence. But desperation is not the only thing we see when we look at this man. We also see humility, right? He kneels before Jesus. And we see faith. He doesn't say to him, if you can do it, please make me clean. No, he says, if you will, you can make me clean. He has faith. He believes in the power of Jesus. And and note that he believes not just that Jesus can heal him, but that he can cleanse him. Which is not less than healing, but it is more. It is to be made ceremonial clean and therefore able to re-enter Jewish society. This man believes. He doesn't doubt Jesus' ability to cleanse and to heal. But neither does he demand it. And that's perhaps the most remarkable characteristic we see. If you are willing, you can make me clean. From his posture of desperation, the man recognizes that that it's not enough for Jesus just to be able to heal. He has to be willing to heal. He is under no obligation to do it. He doesn't owe this man anything. And so if the man is to experience the healing and cleansing he needs, it will come entirely at the mercy and initiation of Jesus. He has to be willing. And so with remarkable faith and humility, the leper defers to Jesus rather than demands. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And what we see in this story I mean, praise God, what we see in this story is that Jesus is willing. He is willing to love those whom this world despises and discards. And as the story unfolds, we see that willing love expressed in three ways. First, he rehumanizes the leper. Second, he restores him. And third, he redirects him. First, willing love rehumanizes us. Leprosy was an inherently dehumanizing disease. It robbed its victims of their humanity. Their bodies ceased to work the way that they were supposed to, and people ceased to treat them as fellow humans. They became problems to avoid rather than people to know And to love. And and while leprosy is not something that we're typically worried about contracting in North America today, uh, that same dehumanizing effect can be seen in all sorts of unsettling ways. I mean, you can't traffic in other people, buying and selling human slaves, uh, of which there are approximately 40 million today globally. You can't do that without denying the humanity of those people. Uh, Treating them as less than human, as mere products or property. 
And it wasn't many decades ago that one of the qualifications for owning land or voting or even attending certain churches was the color of your skin. Racism is inherently dehumanizing. It, it denies the human nature of others, the full humanity of others. I mean, you think of the civil rights slogan, right? I am a man. Because that was the battleground, whether or not people of color were fully human or worthy of being treated that way. So it was dehumanizing. Those who suffer from disability know what it's like to be dehumanized. Uh, In the U.S., roughly 70% of babies diagnosed with Down syndrome are aborted. And that rate is way higher in other European countries. You can't do that unless you conclude that their disability makes them less than human. And even when the babies are born, people can still have a hard time seeing the humanity. I knew a woman at our church in Wheaton who, upon giving birth to a Downs baby, received 40 sympathy cards. Sympathy cards. Now, they meant well. That's a hard road. Disability is not easy. But what about congratulations on your baby, Right? There's so many ways that this fallen world robs people of their humanity. And the greatest culprit of all of that is sin. Rebellion against God. We were were made for relationship with God and sin gets in there and tries to instead enslave us to itself. It's like an acid. It, It eats away at the image of God in us eroding our moral character and diluting our connection to God. When the psalmist found himself entangled in sin and unbelief, he said, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward God. Sin robs us of our humanity. It eats away. And and when we encounter someone... uh, who is to us more of a problem than a person, what do we do? We recoil, right? We we pull back. We look away. We pretend like we didn't see them. We treat them like a leper. Despised and discarded. Just stay away. But how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 41. And think carefully about what Jesus is doing. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be clean. Where everyone else recoils at the sight of a leper, what does Jesus do? He stretches out his hand. He moves toward him and touches him. He treats him not not like a pariah, but like a person. He rehumanizes him. 
I mean, you, you don't do that with a leper. Even with the greatest intentions in your heart, you don't touch a leper. It's, it's contagious. It'll make you sick. It'll make you ceremonially unclean. And so imagine the shock of the onlookers as Jesus reaches toward the man. Imagine the flood of emotion in the leper's heart welling up as Jesus reaches toward him. And he feels for the first time in possibly years the warmth of another human touch. And here's the deal. Jesus didn't have to touch him in order to heal him. He could have just said the word. He does that all the time. He just says something and it's done. But he loved him. And so he did. In his willing love, he rehumanizes the leper. He treats him like a person. And he does the same thing for us. Do you realize that when Jesus looks and sees the broken or ugly parts of our lives, the, the, the ugliness in our hearts, those things about us that the world despises and discards, the, the stuff we think that we have to keep hidden or people won't accept us or love us, that, that when Jesus sees that, He doesn't recoil in disgust. He moves toward us in love. He's willing to love what this world despises and discards. Are we willing to let that love in? Or do we feel that we have to stay hidden? Are we willing to risk exposing our hearts to him? He sees it anyway, and he still moves toward us in love. He responds with pity and compassion, even when it's our fault. He moves toward us in love. Are we willing to receive that? And are we willing to reflect it in how we love others? Those who would normally cause us to recoil whose humanity has been robbed by poverty or disease or oppression or sin, those in desperate need for another human touch? Are we willing to move toward them as Jesus does? There was another mother at our church in Wheaton who had a child with a significant disability um, including some pretty significant facial abnormalities. And as people would come up, they'd see the car seat. You know, you see the car seat, you're excited to see the baby, right? And as people would come up, this mother would watch in pain as invariably the facial expression would change from this joyful curiosity to one of shock when they saw the baby. Except for one child who with excitement ran up and saw only a beautiful baby and proceeded to play with that baby 
to make googly faces and try and get it to laugh. A child with Down syndrome. If you want to see what the humanizing love of Jesus looks like, you watch the way that someone with Downs treats others. It's beautiful. Willing love rehumanizes us. Second, willing love restores us. It restores us. Jesus didn't just feel pity for the leper. He took pity on him. He did something about his desperate situation, something that only Jesus could do. He addressed the problem directly and he restored him. He healed him and cleansed him. Look again at verse 41 and 42. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Now that is the incredible power of Jesus. He has authority over sickness and death and disease. I mean, we spend billions upon billions of dollars on health care every year. Jesus just has to say the word. He has authority to take the newness of life that God promises for the end and as a sign of that future hope to break into the present with it and bring healing to those who believe. He has the, th- the authority and the power to do that. But here's the thing. He doesn't just have the authority and the power. He has the desire. He is willing. He wants to restore his people. And that's what he does here. He doesn't just heal him of the disease He restores the man's life. Remember how leprosy didn't just affect his body physically. It also cut him off from community and from worship. And so notice how Jesus doesn't just heal him. He then instructs him in verse 44 to go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, of course, after the cross, Jesus is going to get away, get rid of all of those sacrifices because all of them were ultimately meant to point to him. But, but right here, this offering is the means of that leper's re-entry into Jewish society. It's the confirmation that he's been made whole. And he could go back to life with community and life of worship. All that his leprosy robbed him of, Jesus has restored. And that's what he's willing to do for us, too. To restore all that our sin and the brokenness of this fallen world robs us of. Our dignity, our health, our relationships, our possessions, our purity, our peace. And most importantly, the presence of God in the midst of his people. But more than that, Jesus is willing to restore to God 
what our sin and brokenness has robbed him of. Namely, the fullness of his unique worthiness and incomparable glory being displayed throughout creation through a people for his own possession. Sin robs God of his glory. Jesus willingly restores it. But what does that restoration look like? Our restoration in particular. Sometimes we see that restoration miraculously and immediately, as in this story. Sometimes it comes in small and gradual ways. The common grace of modern medicine. The normal means of grace through which God changes our lives. The word, prayer. The hard and deliberate work of reconciliation and reform. And still sometimes that restoration waits till the end. The new heavens and new earth wherein righteousness dwells. Where there will be no more sickness or sin, no more sorrow, no more racism or poverty, no more systemic injustice, no more disease or disability or death. Rather, there will be Jesus at the right hand of his Father and eternal joy in him. So it will come. Restoration will come. And when we're tempted to doubt that, uh, to question Jesus' willingness to restore to us all this fallen world has stolen, remember that he's already accomplished the hardest part, the cross and resurrection. In order to restore what sin has robbed, he had to deal with the root problem of sin. Where all of this rebellion and brokenness ultimately comes from, the the fall. And, And dealing with that problem cost him everything. He willingly died in our place as our substitute in order to bear our sin and to bear our sickness and our sorrow and everything wrong with our life and with this world. He bore that in our place in order to exhaust his father's holy anger against sin, to accomplish justice, and to bring newness of life through his resurrection for everyone who believes. And so if Jesus is willing to do that, if he's willing to do the hardest thing, will he not return to finish his restoring work in the end? If God was willing to give for us that which was most precious to him, his eternal son, will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32. So Jesus is willing to restore what this world is eager to discard. And again, the question is, are we willing to receive that from him? To trust him rather than grabbing at it ourselves. To acknowledge the breadth and depth of our brokenness 
That we need not just forgiveness, but we need cleansing and healing. We need reconciliation and repentance. And are we willing to acknowledge that we can't fix this ourselves? We need a Savior willing to restore. And are we willing to love others in the same way that Jesus loves us? To work for the restoration of all that this fallen world has robbed them of. To care not only for souls and where they end up when they die, but also for bodies and hearts and relationships and justice and mercy in this world by bearing witness to Christ in both word and deed. As 1 John 3.17 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So, So if you're preaching the gospel to someone who's out of work, tell them about Jesus. Tell them who he is and what he's done to deal with their sin through his life, death, and resurrection, and that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. But then also pick up the phone and make a call and see if you can't help them get an interview. Care for their soul and their livelihood. Or if you're, you're ministering to a single mom, tell her about Jesus and offer to watch her kids once a week. Or to bring a meal. Or to help out in some way that would lighten the load and show her in a tangible way the love of Christ. We need a Savior willing to restore us. And that's the kind of love Jesus has. He's willing to restore. But finally, willing love also redirects us. Look again at verses 43 and 44. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. Now, of course, the man ignores that first instruction. And instead, verse 45, he went out and began to talk freely about it. And to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, the question is, and it's honestly plagued readers of Mark for centuries, why doesn't Jesus want people to know who he is or that he has the power to heal? I mean, why the secrecy? Why does he sternly charge him? It's like the guy got in trouble for being healed. You know, what, what's, what's with that? I mean, he came to establish his kingdom. You'd think there'd be some, I don't know, good idea like sending some flyers around before you enter town, letting people know you're coming. But instead, there's this secrecy. Well, when Jesus told people that he encountered or healed, not to go telling everyone else yet, that was his way of flying under the radar of Israel's misplaced expectations about the Messiah. He knew what Israel was looking for in a Messiah. 
that they wanted a king who would take back Jerusalem and Judea with a great big sword and tell Rome where they can go. That's what they wanted. And if they found out that there was a new king in town, they might, well, take Jesus and try to force him to be king, uh, which almost happened in John chapter 6. And, and, and Jesus can't allow that to happen because his kingdom doesn't come through the sword. It comes through the cross. And he has to wait for his time. But Jesus also knew what was in the heart of the people that he encountered. That once they tasted bread from heaven or miraculous healing, that they would simply want more of that and miss the bigger picture of his kingdom, which is about way more than miraculous healing or ceremonial cleansing. And so Jesus, in in telling the man not to say anything, he's not just protecting himself. He's protecting the man. He's Because while while Jesus is, is willing to move toward him in love and willing to restore him, he's not willing to let the man get too excited about small things. And compared to what he's accomplishing through his kingdom... Healing and cleansing, those are small things. They're great, but it's not the main thing. Willing love redirects us from small things so that we don't miss the main thing. And the main thing is God. God's glory, God's rule, God's presence, God's blessing. There is no greater satisfaction than knowing God and enjoying Him forever? There is no greater gift that God can give to people than Himself? There's no greater treasure than Christ and Him glorified. And so Jesus is not willing to let us become satisfied or fixated on small things. He cares about small things. He grieves them. He celebrates them. But he wants us to be enthralled with the main thing. And that's God. And so, do we allow ourselves in life and faith to get too excited, too distracted, too focused on small things? Am I more excited when God helps me pay an overdue bill than I am about the fact that Christ paid the eternal debt of my sin forever? Am I more eager to catch up on Netflix than I am to spend time with God in His Word? Are we willing to let Jesus redirect us toward the main thing? both in our affections for him, but also in our witness to others. And so so as we reflect Christ's love, we need to care about restoration and be holistic in our witness, to preach the gospel in both word and deed. But we need to keep an eternal perspective that there's something worse than unemployment and something better than a six-figure salary. That there's something worse than infertility and something better than a quiver full of kids. 
that there's something worse than cancer and something better than living to 95. As Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert put it, there is something worse than death and something better than human flourishing. There is God. And the terror of being separated from Him forever or the internal unending joy of being united with Him forever. If we hope only for renewed cities and restored bodies in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. God cares about the small things. But the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ is so much bigger because it directs us to God through the cross and resurrection toward that final restoration when everything will be made new. And that's where our ultimate satisfaction and joy lies. Willing love redirects us. Jesus is willing to love what this world despises and discards. His love rehumanizes us, it restores us, and it redirects us to the main thing. That is the heart of Jesus for you. May that be our heart for others as well. Let's pray. Lord, would we rest in your love? God, open our eyes this fall to see your love in fresh ways. Would you minister to our hearts in ways that we don't even know that we need it? Would you equip us to love others as Christ has loved us? Would you help us to know your love, to rest in your love, and to reflect your love? Thank you that you're willing to love. In Jesus' name, amen.